Okay, sorry. Let's start back where we were starting. Before. Alright, so just as a review from last week, we did the brachial plexus. And I know this week we're going to have our upper limb small group. And so these are some of the questions at this point you should be asking yourself. One, can I draw the brachial plexus? Remember I gave you homework last week. I said five times the day of the lecture, five times the next day, five times the following day. So I'm assuming now that we can all draw the brachial plexus quite comfortably. Yes? <laughs> all right. Then you should be asking yourself, okay, so what are the different nerves that comes from the different cords? So the posterior cord, medial cord, lateral cord. And that includes not only your terminal branches, but also your smaller branches, right? Remember we had supraclavicular branches coming from the roots and the trunks, and we had infraclavicular branches coming from the cords. So while you're drawing your brachial plexus, you now have to be able to put those nerves into that drawing. You should also be asking yourself, what muscles do these nerves innovate? Because there's no use in us knowing all of the nerves if we don't know the muscles they innovate. And that's important because, of course, that means function. And if you have lesions to these nerves, then that's what you're going to see. You're going to see functional loss. So you need to know what muscles are innovated and, of course, what are the functions of those muscles. So if you could answer all of these questions in terms of the brachial plexus as of today, then you're quite far ahead in terms of what you need to know for upper limb. And so let's move on to the posterior compartment. So last week we talked about the fact that in the arm, you have it divided into anterior and posterior. We talked about several, um, several rules of the upper limb. What was one of the rules of the upper limb when it came to muscles and functions? Right, so... Any muscle that crosses the joint is going to innovate that joint. So that was a rule. What was another rule that we discussed? In the upper limb specifically, we said that if a muscle crosses anterior to the joint, it's going to be flexion. If the muscle crosses posterior to the joint, it's going to be extension. So that's another rule. And we also spoke about the fact that these compartments have a general function and they have a general innovation. So for example, for the anterior compartment, we said that the nerve that innervates that anterior compartment was musculocutaneous, and the major function of the anterior compartment of the arm was flexion. So we had flexion of the elbow, which was the major one, and we had one muscle, two muscles rather, that did some flexion at the shoulder joint. Does anyone remember what those muscles are? Coracobrachialis, the really small one, and biceps, which head of the biceps? long head of the biceps, accessory flexor of the shoulder joint. So, okay, good. That means you guys are reviewing. I'm happy about that. So let's move to the posterior compartment. So just as the anterior compartment was flexor, now the posterior compartment, which is the antagonistic compartment, is your extensor compartment. Okay? And really, in there, we have one large muscle with three heads. So we have a triceps brachii muscle. It's named because you have three heads. And let's see if we can identify the different heads of the triceps muscle. We have a long head here, which we can see is going to go and attach to this area. This is what? What's this area? Sorry. Okay. Can we see now? All right, so good. So we have the long head, which attaches here. You can see that. 
So what's this area here? What's this area that I'm pointing to? That's the glenoid fossa. So the long head is inserted at the inferior aspect of the glenoid fossa, which means that it crosses the shoulder joint. So is it going to act on the shoulder joint? Yes, it is. So it actually adds to extension of the shoulder joint. So it does some accessory extension of the shoulder joint. We have a lateral head here, which attaches to the humerus, or it originates from the humerus. It does not cross the shoulder joint, so it's not going to act on the shoulder joint. But we're going to see where it inserts. And of course, we have a medial head. Now, all three heads come together and insert onto the olecranon of the um, ulnar bone. And they do that via this tendon here, which is our triceps tendon. So last week, you guys would have done the triceps reflex in a small group. So that's the triceps tendon. And basically, you're tapping on this tendon, and you're supposed to see extension of the elbow joint. So they all insert via the triceps tendon onto the ulnar, and so they're all going to act on the elbow joint. Okay? So, so far, we've said only the long head acts both on the elbow joint and the shoulder joint, but the other two heads will all act on the elbow joint, and their function is for extension. So that's what we've just discussed here. And the posterior compartment is done by the radial nerve. Now let's have a look at this picture here. Okay, so we saw, we've seen here. So here we have a muscle. Can anyone tell me what muscle this is? Teres. Teres major. Good. And this is our long head of our triceps. And this is our humerus. So this area that we're looking at here is called the triangular interval. And going through that triangular interval, we can see our radial nerve, right, going posterior to innervate our posterior compartment. And we have a vessel that accompanies the radial nerve, and that's called the deep brachial artery. So brachial means arm, deep means it's going to go deep and go posterior. So your deep brachial artery accompanies your radial nerve. And they're both actually descending in the radial groove, right, or in the radial groove of the humerus. So one of the things I want us to take from this is if we have a fracture of the radial groove of the humerus, so if you have a mid-shaft fracture of the rate of the humerus, what um, neurovascular structures can be damaged? Radial nerve and deep brachial artery. What functions do you think the patient will lose if you have a mid-shaft fracture? Extension at the elbow joint. Okay? So it's important for us to start thinking about how our different nerves are associated with their bony landmarks. So moving down, so we're moving from the posterior compartment. Now we're going back to the anterior aspect to look at an area called the cubital fossa. Now the cubital fossa is this area here that's the boundaries. We can see you have a lateral boundary, you have medial boundaries, and of course you have a floor. It's basically a triangular area. And if you look at your elbow joint, that little dip area that you have there, that area is our cubital fossa. Okay, so we've now learned that the axilla, the armpit is going to be a layman's term for the axilla. And now we can look at that area here at the elbow, which would be our cubital fossa. So, of course, we have boundaries of our cubital fossa. Okay, so we have boundaries. So we have a lateral boundary, medial boundary, and 
of an inf sorry, superior boundary, I guess, if you can look at it in the anatomical position. So laterally, we have this muscle here called the brachioradialis. We're going to see it again in an upcoming slide when we talk about the posterior compartment. And this is one of our exception muscles. So remember we said that generally you have rules, but to every rule there's going to be exceptions. So keep in mind, put a star next to the brachioradialis because that's one of our exception when it, exceptions when it comes to our muscles. Medially, we have our pronated teres. And basically, you're drawing a line between your two epicondyles, and that's going to be the superior border of your cubital fossa. Now, what goes through the cubital fossa? Going from medial to lateral, you have your median nerve, you have your brachial artery, and at that point, it's actually going to start to separate into its two terminal branches. What do you think would be the two terminal branches of the brachial artery? Right. Ulnar and radial, because now it's going from the arm into the forearm. And in the forearm, we have those two big bones. You have your ulna and your radius. And when it comes to the forearm, you would notice that everything really is related either to the ulnar or the radius. And so always think radius is lateral, ulnar is medial, and then you would actually really start um, associating your structures. So we have our brachial artery, which is going to start separating. We have the bicipital aponeurosis. So basically, it's a slight bit of connective tissue that crosses over into the forearm from the biceps muscle, and you have your biceps tendon. Now, again, last week, you guys would have palpated the biceps tendon, and would, you'd have done the biceps reflex. So if I'm doing the biceps reflex, what nerve roots am I testing with the biceps reflex? C5 and C6, right? So C5 and C6, I'm testing with the biceps reflex. You guys also did the triceps reflex. What muscle, what nerve roots am I testing with the triceps reflex? No, nope, not all of them. Specifically, what are we testing? Seven and eight. So guys, in that physical exam manual, we have our roots of our, our different reflexes. So not only do you need to know how to perform them, but we also need to think about what they're testing. So we talked about the median nerve, brachial artery, the floor is the brachialis muscle, and the roof would be basically the fascia and the skin. Now what I want us to take note of is this structure right here. So we're going to talk a little bit about these two vessels, and these are superficial veins, so they're located within the skin. And this vein here is called your median cubital vein. Now has anyone here gone to give blood before? Right, and they usually put the tourniquet on and the blood, the, um, your veins pop up. And if you're doing it in the, the cubital fossa, the vein that you're attempting to get the blood from is this vein here, which is called your median cubital vein, and it connects our two major superficial veins. We'll talk about that in an upcoming slide. I had a question. No? You had a okay. All right, so let's think a little bit about the blood supply. So we know that... From the axilla, we had the axillary artery. We know that it crosses a major landmark, which is what? When does the axillary artery become the brachial artery? First rib. So what happens in the first rib? The subclavian artery becomes the axillary artery. So when does the axillary artery, which is our axilla artery, becomes the arm artery, which is our brachial artery? Teres, right, the inferior border of teres major. So at that point, you get your brachial artery. From the brachial artery, you're going to have a deep branch that we just saw, which is going to go deep into the posterior compartment. And of course, the brachial artery is going to give blood supply to all of the structures in the anterior compartment of the arm. 
It's going to go down to the cubital fossa, at which point it's going to separate into a radial artery laterally and an ulnar artery medially. Okay? Now, what I want you guys to take note of here is and from the ulnar artery, you can see something labeled as a common interosseous artery. Whenever you have things labeled as common in anatomy, it means that it's going to split or it's going to divide, right? Common iliac divides into right and left iliac. So here, a common interosseous divides into an anterior and a posterior interosseous artery. And basically, our landmark is this membrane that connects our two bones. So between your radius and your ulnar, you have an interosseous membrane that connects the bone. So your common interosseous artery divides into an anterior interosseous that goes anterior to the, common, to the um, interosseous membrane and a posterior, inter posterior interosseous artery that goes posterior to the interosseous membrane. Now, anterior to the interosseous membrane, we have the anterior compartment. So your common interosseous would give blood supply to your anterior compartment. Posterior to the interosseous membrane, you have your posterior compartment. So your posterior interosseous gives blood supply to the posterior compartment. And so, again, when you go to the lab, you'll be able to see these vessels as they separate, and you should be able to identify them within the lab setting. So we cannot talk about blood supply without talking about venous drainage. And here we're going to talk about those two superficial veins that I spoke about. You have a cephalic vein, which is lateral, and a basilic vein, which is medial. Now, what I want us to take note of is the cephalic vein actually comes all the way from the forearm into the arm, and it actually goes all the way to drain into the axillary vein at the deltopectoral triangle. So it does not actually drain into the axillary vein in the arm, but it actually goes all the way and drains into the axillary vein at that deltopectoral triangle. On the medial side, you have the basilic vein. Okay, so laterally, and again, think about this, that you're in the anatomical position. So laterally, you have the cephalic vein. Medially, you have the basilic vein. Now, the basilic vein initially starts off as a superficial vein in the form. When it gets to the arm, it goes deep and joins with your brachial vein to form your axillary vein. Now, where do you think your axillary vein forms? What's the landmark for the formation of your axillary vein? Inferior border of teres major, because that's where the veins are going to be forming, and of course, that's where the axillary artery ends. Okay? And I spoke about the median cubital vein that connects your basilic and your cephalic, and we also spoke about the clinical significance of this vein because it's the vein that's most commonly used for venipunctures. All right, cutaneous innovation, always important. Now, unfortunately for you guys, for the upper limb, you do have to know not only the terminal branch, the, na the named nerves that innervate these areas, but you also have to be aware of the dermatomal distribution of these areas. Now, I know dermatomes are a bit difficult just because we have several different maps, and I know that in your NETA, you have one map, and in the um, Gray's Anatomy textbook, you have a different map. And that's because the anatomists are still arguing, still even now, about the different maps and how they are. But there are certain areas that are very common. So, for example, we know that C5 starts in this area, right, within the shoulder. We go down to C6, which is going to be your thumb. We know that C8 is always going to be the next finger. T1 comes up on the medial side. Now, C7, we have these three fingers can be a little bit variable, but those are some very common landmarks. So you do need to have an idea of the general dermatomal distribution of your um, upper limb, in addition to knowing these nerves that we have here. So let's start with the anterior view, and we're only going to focus on the arm for today, for this lecture. So of course you have a lateral, you have a medial. Medial brachial cutaneous nerve, where does that come from? Medial brachial cutaneous nerve. 
comes from the median chord, right? We saw that, the medial chord, we saw that last week. We have a lateral brachiocutaneous, which comes from the radial nerve, and we have a superior lateral brachiocutaneous. So in terms of laterally, you have a superior, which is axillary. You have an inferior, which is radial, and of course, you have your medial brachiocutaneous. Now, I also have here labeled the intercostal brachial, and this is basically your T2 dermatome, and that actually goes through into the armpit. And that's a very important nerve that you guys are going to talk about in the next module where when you have um, cardiac pain, you can actually have referral to the upper limb via this intercostal brachial nerve. Okay? So you do need to know the, the distribution. Posteriorly, basically, we have the posterior brachial cutaneous, which is going to be, of course, your radial nerve. So that leads us to the first clicker question. All right, so our patient was brought to the emergency room after falling from a ladder. And on physical examination, he is unable to extend the elbow joint or difficulty extending the elbow joint, but there are no other injuries. Radiography reveals fracture of the humerus, which of the following parts is most likely affected. So what muscle extends the elbow joint? Triceps, right? What nerve innervates the triceps? Radial nerve. Which parts of the bone here is associated with the radial nerve? Mid shaft of the humerus, right? So if you have a fracture there, we just spoke about damage to the radial nerve. Surgical neck. What nerve is associated with a surgical neck fracture? Axillary nerve. If we had a surgical neck fracture, what sort of, in, what sort of symptoms would the patient have? Right, abduction from 15 to 90, and they would have difficulty in doing what? Some sort of, right, lateral rotation because of your teres minor. All right. All right, so that moves us on to, quite nicely, into the elbow joint, and thinking about motions in the elbow joint. So we know that in terms of the elbow joint, we have several things that occur. We have flexion, extension, we have pronation, supination. And one of the things we have to understand is that the elbow joint is actually a complex joint. So you have three bones, your humerus, your radius, and your ulnar, forming this joint. Key aspects to remember, the ulnar is medial, radius is lateral. And in anatomy and clinically, you may hear persons or physicians um, refer to the ulnar side of the forearm or the 
or the radial side of the forearm. And that means that radial side of the forearm would be lateral side of the forearm. Ulnar side of the forearm would be the medial side of the forearm. Okay? Now, the actual joint, we have three joints, and they all share a synovial cavity. So we have a joint between the humerus and the ulnar. We have a joint between the humerus and the radius. And we also have a joint between the ulnar and the radius. So at the humeral ulnar and the humoradial joint, we have flexion extension. So that's going to be the hinge joint. Okay? So when we talk about the elbow joint being a hinge joint, we're talking about that joint or these joints where you have flexion extension occurring. Between the radius and the ulnar, this is what kind of joint? Does anyone remember what kind of joint we have here between the radius and the ulnar? It's a pivot joint because we have some sort of, it's a slight, it is actually a rotational movement that occurs between the radius and the ulnar. So that's a pivot joint. And what actions occur at that joint? That's going to be our pronation supination joint. Now I want us to be very clear about pronation supination. So if I'm in this position here, and I'm doing this, that, right? So this is not pronation and supination. This action occurs at the shoulder joint. So that's internal rotation, external rotation. In order for me to pronate and supinate properly, I will need to isolate the elbow joint. So by flexing the elbow joint, I'm isolating it. And now I can pronate and supinate because now I can actually rotate along that radial ulnar joint. So landmarks we need to um, identify in the humerus. Laterally, articulating with the radius, we have the capitulum. And how do I identify it? You can see it's more of a rounded structure, whereas medially I have the trochlea, which is going to articulate with the ulnar. Okay? Posteriorly, I can see I have the ulnar has a large process, which is called the olecranon. It fits quite nicely into a notch, and this is going to be where the major um, point really occurs in terms of your flexion and extension. Ligaments of the elbow joint. So of course, it's a synovial joint. You have your joint capsule, but that's going to be reinforced by ligaments. So you have a radial collateral ligament. Where do you think that would be? Lateral or medial? Lateral, right? Remember we said that radial is always lateral. You have an ulnar collateral ligament. Would that be lateral or medial? medial. And you have a very interesting ligament here, which is called the annular ligament. And it basically holds the head of the radius against the ulnar. And it's within this ligament that you have rotation, spinning really of the radial head to allow for pronation and supination. So that's a very important ligament. Put a little star on the annular ligament. We'll be seeing it again in the upcoming slides. Let's think about the bones. So if I were to do a radiograph of the upper limb and I'm looking at the bones of the forearm, one of the first things to notice is that the two bones are reverse in dimension. What do we mean by that? It means that at the elbow, you have one bone that's larger, one bone that's smaller. When you get to the wrist, you have one bone that's larger and one that's smaller, and they're basically the opposite, okay? So at the elbow joint, you have your ulnar and you have your olecranon, which is the larger portion Right? So if I'm looking at a radiograph and I'm looking at the elbow joint, I'm looking to see which bone is the larger bone. It should be medial, and that would be my ulnar and in terms of the um, size of the bone at that area. Whereas the radial head, you can see in, in comparison, is very small. If I go distally, 
Here I can see the radius distally as it articulates with the wrist or the carpal bones becomes much larger, whereas the ulnar becomes much smaller. So that's going to be something that I tend to use when I look at my radiographs to be able to differentiate between my radius and ulnar. Okay, and again, radius would be lateral and ulnar would be medial. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about pronation, supination, just because it's very unique to the elbow joint. You don't have pronation, supination occurring anywhere else. So how does this actually occur? So at the proximal radial ulnar joint, which is the, the area of the joint at the elbow, we have several muscles. So we know that the biceps, what fun, what's the function of the biceps muscle? Flexion and supination. So major function would be supination. In addition, we also have a smaller muscle called the supinator muscle. You have to love anatomy, supination, supinator muscle. And so these muscles, when they contract, will actually cause the radial head to spin within or spin against the capitulum within the, um, within the annual ligament at the proximal end. And distally, you can see that the radius slides anteriorly over the ulnar. So basically, you have spinning here, and this bone comes like that. So that's how you can get, sorry, this, that's how you get your pronation, sorry, that meant pronation. With supination, basically, you have the opposite. So in the pronated position, now my radius has come anterior. So supination, I'm just going to be pulling those bones back into the anatomical position. So that's your pronation, supination. Now, this can lead us to a clinical condition called subluxation of the radial head, sometimes called nursemaid's elbow. The reason it's called nursemaid's elbow, and I don't know that this is very, very um, kind to nursemaids or to, to um, nannies, is that sometimes you may have a child who's crying a little bit and you're trying to walk the child across the road and instead of you know, gently maneuvering, you sort of tug on the child's arm very severely and that can cause the head of the radius to pop out of the annular ligament, right? It's called subluxation. So the ligament may not be torn, but the radial head is now out of the annular ligament. That's very, very painful. The child will be screaming. So typically the, baby, the um, person comes into the emergency room. The baby is screaming a lot. And as a physician, you have to, of course, examine and make sure you, you understand what the problem is. And then you reduce the injury. So how do we reduce it? There are two different um, techniques that you use. One would be you, basically the arm starts off in the pronated position, so you initially have the baby's arm pronated, and then you forcefully supinate and flex. Okay, someone said, <laughs> now yes, that would be a little painful initially, so you'd hear a large scream and then silence. And that's because as soon as that radial head pops into the annular ligament, pain goes away, child's happy. So that's one of the ways you can reduce the um, <laughs> a subluxation. The other way would be, again, starting from the pronated position, you can forcefully pronate, and again, that would pop the radial head back into the annular ligament. And you know it happens because you actually hear a click. It's one of the... The, the rare cases when you can hear something and you know exactly it happened, you don't even need to do a radiograph because you hear the click, it goes back in, baby's quiet, everyone's happy, especially the nursemaid or the mom or the dad or whoever it is that brought the baby in initially. So moving on to the form in terms of general organization, again, we have typically anterior and posterior compartment. 
Now, here we, we start getting into a little bit more of our muscles, and we start seeing a little bit more of our exceptions. So, so far in the arm, we had anterior was musculocutaneous, posterior was radial. We had no problems, no exceptions. Now, keep in mind, as we go into the form, we're going to get more muscles, and we're going to see a couple of exceptions to our rules. So, anteriorly, we have the flexor compartment, and it's mainly done by the median nerve. With the exception of one and a half muscles, and you may be asking yourself, how can you do half a muscle? We'll see how you can do half a muscle. So it's mainly done by the median nerve, with the exception of one and a half muscles that's done by the ulnar nerve. So that's our exception. Posteriorly, we have the posterior compartment, and that's done by the radial nerve. Now, here I have deep radial posterior intarsius. Those are branches of the radial nerve, and we'll talk about specifically the muscles that are going to be innervated by those branches. So let's start off anteriorly. Now, the anterior compartment has three levels. You have a superficial level, you have an intermediate level, and you have a deep level. So we're going to go systematically through the muscles of each level and talk about their functions and talk about their innovation. So the superficial level, if we're starting from, if we're starting from, Let's start lateral. So if we're starting lateral to medial going from our superficial level, we have our pronated teres. Let's see if I can point it out for you here. So this is our pronated teres muscle. We have our flexocarpi radialis muscle. We have our palmaris longus and our flexocarpi ulnaris. Now remember we said ulnar means medial and rad um, radial means Lateral. So, of course, our flexocarpi ulnaris would be medially. It's the most medial muscle in the superficial compartment. And our flexocarpi radialis would be more lateral. Now, what I want you guys all to do now is flex, forcefully flex your wrist. Can everyone do that? Like, just do force flexion. Have a look at your wrist, and can you see some tendons pop up? Do you have one or two? So, most people will have two. Some people will only have one. So those tendons that we're seeing, the lateral one, guys, so the tendons that we're seeing, if you have two, which most people should, the lateral one, what do you think the lateral one would be? Flexor carpi ulnaris, right? Sorry, flexor carpi radialis, geez. Flexor carpi radialis. And the one that's the most prominent, which is just medial to that, that is actually your palmaris longus. Now, the palmaris longus muscle is an interesting muscle because, one, not everyone has a palmaris longus. And some people may actually have the palmaris longus on one wrist, but not on the other wrist. So it's a very vestigial muscle. Okay? But it's the most prominent tendon that you'll see when you do forceful flexion. Okay? And, of course, our more medial tendon would be your flexocarpi ulnaris. So what's going to be the functions of these muscles? What do you think the pronated teres muscle will do? Pronate, right? I like anatomy. It tells you exactly what it does. Pronate teres. Flexocarpi radialis. Now, these muscles, they come from the humerus. They're going to cross the elbow joint, but they're going to cross the elbow joint very proximally. So they don't act very much on the elbow joint. But they insert into our carpal bones, right, and our metacarpal bones, and their main function is to act on the wrist joint. So these anterior compartment muscles are going to be flexing, but instead of flexing the elbow joint, they're now flexing the wrist joint. So they're flexing the um, their flexion of the wrist. 
All of these muscles originate from what's called a common flexor tendon. And that common flexor tendon actually is at the medial epicondyle. So if you look at your humerus, medially you have a little bone that props out there, a little projection that's called your medial epicondyle. All of these tendons originate from the medial epicondyle and then they go down into the forearm to insert into the carpals or the metacarpals, um, into the carpals or the metacarpals. So they're all going to be, so flexocarpi radialis, palmaris longus, and flexocarpi ulnaris are all going to be flexing the wrist joint. Now, in addition to flexion of the wrist joint, look at our radialis, carpi radialis. It's a little bit lateral. So what it's going to do is it's going to adduct the wrist joint, which moves it, moves it laterally. Whereas the flexocarpi ulnaris, what do you think it's going to do? It's going to adduct the wrist joint, move it medially. Okay? So in addition to flexion, you have adduction of the wrist joint with your ulnaris or abduction of your wrist joint with your radialis. And all of these muscles are innervated by the median, except for which one? Flexa, carpi, ulnaris. So that's one of the one and a half muscles. So remember I said all of the muscles in the anterior compartment is done by the median, excepting one and a half muscles. So one of the one and a half muscles would be your flexa carpi ulnaris. Again, I love this area because the names actually give you a very good hint as to what these structures would be doing, right? Flexor carpi ulnaris, flexes the wrist joint, adducts the wrist joint. All right, so if I were to dissect away the superficial layer, I have what's called an intermediate layer, and that's made up of one muscle. And look at the name of the muscle, flexor digitorum superficialis. What do you think that muscle is going to do? It's going to flex the digits. Do you think it's going to flex the wrist? All right, so let's, 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 do, some, let's do some anatomical... Um, Let's do some anatomical landmarking before we go into that question. So here we're at the, the, radi um, the radius and the ulnar, right? So radius, ulnar. Here we have our carpal bones. Here we have our phalanges, and these would be our digits. Now this muscle here we can see is crossing the wrist joint. So is it going to flex the wrist joint? Yes, it's going to flex the wrist joint. And it goes down into our digits to flex your digits. Now we can see it's, flexing, it's fl crossing the wrist joints, carp crossing our carpal bones, crossing the joint between our carpal bones and our, tar and our, and our, um, our metacarpal bones. So this is our carpal bones and our metacarpal bones. So this joint here between your carpal bones and your metacarpal bones, what do you think it's called? It's called the carpal metacarpal joint, right? So your MCP or your... Um, your Metacarp your MCP joint, carpal metacarpal joint. Ugh, anyways, I hate, no, I hate um, abbreviations. So your carpal metacarpal joint. Now here you have your phalanges. So one, two, three in your digits. We can see this muscle goes down and it crosses the joint between your metacarpal bones and your phalanx. So what's that joint called? It's called the metacarpal phalangeal joint, right? So that's, it's that joint here between your metacarpals and your proximal phalanx. That's your metacarpophalangeal joint. And then, of course, you have proximal phalanx with your middle phalanx. So this is going to be an interphalangeal joint. And you have your middle phalanx, which are distal phalanx. So that's also going to be an interphalangeal joint. 
So just to go through in terms of the different levels of um, the different levels of organization we have. Again, we have our carpal bones, our carpal metacarpal joint, our metacarpal bones, our metacarpal phalangeal joint, and of course our interphalangeal joints. And the reason I want to go through this in this slide is so that we can understand the specific function of this muscle. So we can see the muscle comes down and it crosses our wrist joint, crosses our carpal metacarpal joint, it crosses our metacarpal phalangeal joints, and it goes to insert onto the middle phalanx, so that means it crosses the proximal interphalangeal joint. So it's going to flex at all of those joints. Okay, so it's going to flex the wrist, it's going to flex at this point, which is your metacarpal phalangeal joint, and it's going to flex at this point, which is your proximal interphalangeal joint. Okay, now something to note as it inserts is that you can see it spreads, it, it um, actually spreads or divides into two, and inserts on the middle phalanx. And again, it's innervated by the median nerve. So that's our, inter our intermediate layer. Down into the deep layer, we have three muscles. And here is where it gets a little bit interesting because even though, yes, these are innervated by the median nerve, they're innervated by a specific branch of the median nerve, and that's called the, in the anterior interosseous nerve. Okay? So first thing to take from the slide is that the deep layer is innervated mainly by the anterior interosseous nerve. So what are the muscles that we have in the deep layer? Flexor pollicis longus. Pollis means thumb. So what do you think that muscle is going to do? Flexes the thumb, right? So it's going to flex the pollux, right? Flexor digitorum profundus. Profundus means deep. It's in the deep layer, and it flexes the digits. So again, this muscle is going to go all the way down to flex our digits. Now let's look at the difference between our superficial flexor and our deep flexor. So our deep flexor comes all the way down, and you can see this is the tendon of the deep flexor. And where does it insert? It inserts on the distal phalanx. So now it's not only going to flex at the wrist, flex at the MCPs, flex at the PIPs, or the proximal interphalangeal joint, but it's now also going to flex at the distal interphalangeal joint. So they're going to be flexing the distal interphalangeal joint. Another interesting thing about this muscle is that it has dual innervation. So this, I think, is going to be the first muscle we're going to see in anatomy that has dual innervation. You have a lateral side that's innervated by the median nerve, specifically by the anterior antosseous nerve. You have a medial side that's innervated by... What's going to innervate the medial side of the muscle? The ulnar nerve. So that's going to be the half of the muscle that we're talking about. So you have two medial heads that are innervated by the ulnar nerve. You have two lateral heads that are innervated by the anterior interosseous nerve. So that's very important for us to remember. And finally, the last muscle you have is your pronator quadratus, which is involved in pronation. So for pronation, we've seen pronator teres in the superficial compartment, and now we're seeing pronator quadratus in the deep compartment in terms of pronation. Okay, any questions? If you guys have questions, please feel free to ask them. Now, I want us just to go back to these two muscles because we have a lot of questions on these two muscles in terms of your questions and our questions because, you know, it's a very interesting area. So we can see here we have our, let's look at our flexor digitorum superficialis, and we said we can see it comes down, crosses the wrist joint, the carpal metacarpal joint, 
the metacarpophalangeal joint and inserts into the middle phalanx. And as it inserts, you can see it divides into two and inserts into the middle phalanx. So it's going to flex all of these areas down to the proximal interphalangeal joint. The profundus, on the other hand, goes all the way and it inserts onto the distal phalanx. So it's going to flex at the distal phalangeal joint. So in order for us to isolate the um, flexidodotorum profundus, one of the things we have to do is, because we want to isolate it in terms of its terminal function, I guess you can say, basically we have to keep our wrist nice and straight, keep our interphalangeal joints and our metacarpophalangeal joints nice and straight, and then flex like that. And so this action that I'm doing now is isolating my flexidodotorum profundus. Now some people can do this just like that without actually holding onto the, in, onto the onto this joint, but I can't do that, so I have to demonstrate like this, okay? So that action here, see this, you know, look, a gentleman right there is doing it. <laughs> that action is isolating your flexor digitorum profundus muscle. How do I isolate? If I want to isolate, so if I want to isolate, guys, if I want to isolate my flexor digitorum superficialis muscle in terms of its terminal function, basically, that function here, which is flexion of the proximal interphalangeal joint, I have now isolated my flexidigitorum superficialis muscle. So they're very interesting muscles um, because of their functions. And don't forget, in terms of where they're coming from, where they're inserting, so you can understand the different, the different um, structures that there are, different areas that they're going to be acting on. So that brings us to a question. Okay. I don't know why that happened, so we'll reset. Okay. All right, let's see if, okay. And my timer isn't working. All right, we seem to have quite a few of you, 458 responses, so I'm going to start my discussion. So our patient was involved in an accident, and he's unable to flex the distal phalanx of digits 2 and 3, but can flex the MCP and PIP. So remember we said MCP would be your metacarpophalangeal joint. Distal um, PIP would be your proximal interphalangeal joint, and then of course you'll hear us using the term DIP, which means distal interphalangeal joint. So if he can flex, that means he can flex here, right? He can flex here, but he cannot flex here. 
So what muscle is involved in terms of flexing the DIP specifically? That's your flexor digitorum profundus. But we're told, but we know rather, that this muscle has dual innervation. So it's innervated by the ulnar nerve medially and the anterior interosseous, a branch of the median nerve, laterally. So digits two and three, are those your lateral digits or your medial digits? Those are your lateral digits. So which of the nerves here would be involved? Anterior interosseous nerve, okay? Now, you may ask, but Dr. Rayburn, you have median on there. Wouldn't median be correct? Why would median not be correct? Uh, <laughs> there's what? Okay, so you can still flex flexor digitorum superficialis because he can flex the, DM, the um, MCP as well as the PIP joint, so that's a good one. Additionally, there was no sensory loss. So that's to tell you that the anterior interosseous nerve is a purely motor nerve that only innervates the deep compartment of the flexor compartment. All right? So take a note of that, put a star next to it. Anterior interosseous is a motor nerve and it innervates the deep muscles um, in the flexor compartment with the exception of the medial part of your flexor digitorum profundus. Radial, we know, is going to be going to our posterior compartment, which we'll talk about in a bit. Posterior interosseous is a branch of the radial, so we'll talk about that as well. All right, so let's move on to our posterior compartment. We have a superficial layer and a deep layer, just like we had in the anterior compartment. And similarly, just like you had a common flexor tendon, which came from the medial epicondyle for the flexor compartment, you have a common extensor tendon, and that comes from the lateral epicondyle for the extensor compartment. Okay, so some of these muscles within the superficial layer will actually start from that common extensor tendon. Now, sometimes people get a little bit scared of the posterior compartment because we have a lot of muscles in there. And in addition, the, the innovation is not as simple as you have in the anterior compartment. But let's go through them and we can see how we can differentiate. So let's start off with this muscle. It's brachioradialis. Remember what I said about the brachioradialis initially when we saw it in the cubital fossa? I said it was what? It was an exception. So it's a posterior compartment muscle, which means it's innervated by the radial nerve. Okay? So its exception is not in the innervation. So what is, this, what is the exception? The exception is in the function. So remember we said that muscles across posteriorly are going to extend the um, upper limb. However, the brachioradialis actually flexes the upper limb. Okay? So it's our exception. So it actually flexes the upper limb in the mid-prone position. So when you're shaking someone's hand and your arm is flexing or your elbow is flexing, that muscle that you're using there is your brachioradialis. You can actually feel it when you're doing that. You can see, feel that muscle contract under your arm, under your fingers. Okay? So this is our exception. It's an accessory flexor when the hand is in the mid-prone position. So I like to call it my handshake muscle, and that's the way I remember it, because when I'm shaking someone's hand, I'm going, well, maybe, I don't know, sometimes you do that. You're going to be flexing at the wrist. Sorry, at the elbow joint. All right, so from the common extensor tendon, we have these muscles here. We have carpi radialis muscles. So 
just as I had radialis muscles on the anterior compartment, right? And those muscles were flexing the wrist. But in addition to flexing, what did my radialis muscles do? They abducted the wrist. So similarly, these radialis muscles from the posterior compartment also abduct the wrist. So they will be extending and abducting the wrist. If I have ulnaris muscles, what would my ulnaris muscles do? They would be adducting the wrist. So in addition to extending the wrist, they're also going to adduct the wrist. So those are my carpi um, radialis. And in the extensor compartment, I actually have two. I have a longus and a brevis. And one of the things to start thinking about in terms of longus and brevis, we're going to see those terms a lot. Longus tends to mean that you have a longer tendon. Brevis means you have a larger muscle belly. So if you take that with you, you're going to see that again and again, not only in the upper limb, but also in the lower limb. So I have a carpi radialis longus, carpi radialis brevis, extensor digitorum. What do you think that muscle is going to do? Extend at the wrist, extend my digits. I have a extensor digiti minimi. What do you think that's going to do? What's my digiti minimi? Right, my little finger, that's my digiti minimi. So I have a specific muscle that can go down and, and extend my little finger, my digiti minimi. Okay? And these muscles are done by the radial nerve or by the posterior interosseous nerve. So again, we're seeing a branch of the radial nerve, and that's the posterior interosseous nerve. So we need to differentiate between the ones done by radial nerve proper or by the posterior interosseous nerve. Just like my anterior interosseous was purely motor, my posterior interosseous is also going to be purely motor. So I'll stop at this point. You guys are going to break, and we'll come back at 2 o'clock. <laughs>